I'm not a very excitable guy by nature. If you get an email from me, you're not going to find a ton of exclamation marks. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find any at all. So for me to say that I'm excited about something, well, I just don't throw that word around all the time. But I am truly excited about something special that I'm going to be doing with a small group of listeners beginning later this month. Towards the end of last year, we did a survey of over a thousand listeners of the show, and the number one thing that people wanted help with just so happens to be the number one thing I've wanted to work with people on for quite some time now. I've decided to offer a series of workshops on creating and implementing a set of personalized spiritual habits. What are spiritual habits? They are spiritual practices and activities that we do every day consistently. I'll be handpicking a small group of people and we will all be working together to help implement spiritual habits in your life. Practicing spiritual habits has so many benefits. For example, they provide a tool for us to disconnect from the negativity around us and get in touch with the bigger picture. They can provide clarity during days that feel hectic and overwhelming. They can help us lift our mood and they can help us be more present to life all around us and inside of us. In this workshop, we are going to bring together the science of building habits with the wisdom of spiritual traditions to help you create a set of powerful spiritual habits in your own life. To learn more, go to thespiritualhabit.com. You'll be taken to a short video that explains the program in more detail. Again, go to thespiritualhabit.com to learn more about this exciting opportunity. A sense of purpose can also just be this action that I'm taking that is engaging something that's greater than myself. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction how they feed their good wolf. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Elisha Goldstein, co-founder of the Center for Mindful Living in West Los Angeles and creator of the six-month coaching and mentorship program, A Course in Mindful Living. Elisha is a psychologist, an international speaker, and mindfulness educator. His books include Uncovering Happiness and The Now Effect. He's also co-author of a mindfulness-based stress reduction workbook and MBSR Every Day. Hi, Elisha. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. We're going to talk about your book, Uncovering Happiness, Overcoming Depression with Mindfulness and Self-Compassion, as well as some of the other projects that you're involved in shortly. But let's start like we always do with the parable. 
there is a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second. And he looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Well, to me, that basically that parable says what you practice and repeat is what you get. So in other words, if you practice listening to self-critical thoughts, um, negativity, or paying attention to those things over and over and over again, that's what you'll see. If you practice um, being aware of what's good, you know, a sense of gratitude in life, you know, some of the more positive psychology elements of life, um, you'll see more of that. And that's just a matter of memory. So in other words, when you um, are remembering something or having experiences of something, your brain stores that in short-term memory. And that's what you use to reference how you're going to perceive the next moment. So if you're feeding, you know, one wolf versus the other, you're creating more memories to be referenced to influence your perception of the moments to follow. Mm, that's really good. I really like the way you put that. In the book, there was something I wanted to talk about because you really brought out an idea that I've been thinking a lot about lately. And you refer to them as either depression triggers or depression cures. And, and we'll get into that in a second. But I've really been thinking about this idea of how there are these, you break them into four things that um, seem to show up very often for us as one thing, one undifferentiated thing. And, and you're, you're breaking it into four categories. And those categories are thoughts, emotions, sensations, and behaviors. And I thought maybe we could start by talking about how to how those interact with each other, and also that idea of how if we're not being mindful or if we're not aware, it's often those four things, at least for me, just show up as like one big glob. Yeah, and you know, this fits it back into the parable. So in any given moment, we're experiencing what's called in the field of mindfulness, this triangle of awareness, thoughts, emotions, and sensations. You could check it out right now, even as you're listening to this. Um, you know, what you're experiencing right now is there's likely some thoughts, something interpreting um, what I'm saying or having a judgment about it. There's sensations in your body. Your body's having physical sensations. That's what that comes from your nerves. And there's also an emotional state you're having right now. It could be a comfortable, uncomfortable, or neutral one. What follows is some kind of action, and that's the behavior. So what the brain does is it it makes – we're wired to make things routine. So you practice and repeat something, just like we were talking about with the wolf parable. And that creates a thought, emotion, sensation, and then you follow with a behavior. And what that does is it makes it – what we do is we make that automatic. You practice and repeat something, it starts to become automatic. And that's called – procedural memory. Our brain is memorizing procedures so it can handle more complex things. And so um, when a, something happens in your environment, you see something, it brings it top of mind. So for example, if you, and this has been studied, if you're someone who uh, likes McDonald's, it's not that you'll always be walking around thinking McDonald's all day long, but when you see a sign of the golden arches, you automatically will have a thought 
maybe mm, that looks uh, maybe I'm, I'm hungry, uh, a sensation, a rumbling in your belly and an emotion such as excitement. Um, and the behavior is I want to go get it. Now, if you look at if you look at the neuroscience of that, what you'll see is dopamine, which is the chemical in our brain that's like, go get it, go get it, go get it. You'll see a surge of that happening just by the sight of the golden arches. So there's this conditioned reaction that happens over time as we practice and repeat something of thoughts, emotions, sensations, and behaviors, and it happens automatically so we don't have to think about it anymore. And that affects everything we do in life from our positive habits to our more unhealthy habits. And unless we can begin to name it, so what that what we call what I call that in the uh, in, in the book is the depression loop, um, but you can think of it as a stress loop, an anxiety loop, a habit loop, um, and the conditioned reaction of that, the unknown patterning of it that we all have in different areas of our lives, affects um, uh, how we live our lives on a day to day basis, and this. Uh, this philosopher, and he was also a, a rabbi and a peace activist um, that marched with Martin Luther King, this guy Abraham Joshua Heschel said, life is routine, and routine is resistance to wonder. So as our brain is created to make things routine, we lose out and we miss out on all the wonders around us, and those wonders are feeding uh, the, let's say, that one wolf. If we could pay attention to more of those wonders and create more memories of those wonders, what impact might that have on our perceptions moment to moment and on our happiness, our level of happiness moment to moment? And our level of happiness, by the way, is completely uh, correlated with our level of resiliency. Yeah, I love that Heschel quote. I think it is such a good one. Let's explore this a little bit more. So you're just referring to these as habit loops in general. And like you said, there could be a depressive habit loop, an anxiety habit loop. And you make the analogy with a habit loop that it's a lot like entering a traffic circle and that these loops have four entrance points that we just talked about. You can get into this loop from a thought, from a feeling, from a sensation, or from a behavior. That's right. So it's a conditioned loop. I live in California, so we don't have as many traffic circles. <laughs> so the, so for some people who are more um, versed in them, like going up to traffic circles, no big deal. But for me, going up to a traffic circle, I'm like wondering, like, where do I enter right. exactly? And where do I exit? And we're all cars around me. So, so anxiety starts to build just kind of knowing this traffic circles in front of me. So what happens is once you have that conditioned reaction of the thoughts, emotions, sensations, and behaviors, around whatever you are. So let's let's use this as an example. Let's use depression as an example or anxiety. They go together uh, oftentimes. But you have the thought of, yeah, I don't want to get out of bed today. Um, you have the sensation of heaviness in your body. The emotion is maybe fear. And the behavior is staying in bed. Once that happens, you know, once the feeling of depression is so or anxiety is so averse, it's, it's such an uncomfortable feeling in a lot of ways that the very idea that it might come on again um, is something our brain wants to stay away from. Let's say, uh, and say a panic attack as another example. So all we need is one of those things, a thought, emotion, sensation, or behavior that's associated with that, let's say panic, um, to come up, such as a rapid heart rate. And so our body gets a rapid heart rate and our brain says, oh no, this is associated 
Our brain is a bunch of associations. This is associated with panic. So I might have a panic attack, which makes us catastrophize and worry, which gets our nervous system pumped up. And all of a sudden, it creates the self-fulfilling prophecy of a panic attack. So all we need is one of these, a thought, emotion, sensation, and behavior to alert our brain that this thing might be coming and inevitably creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I really relate a lot with that, how any one of those things can set it off. In thinking about this with myself and looking back at my own struggles with depression, I think that heaviness or tired feeling doesn't do it now so much, but it used to be just the beginning of that would make me think, oh no, here it comes. Exactly. And we, we wonder sometimes, like, why do people wake up in the middle of the night with panic attacks? And people always wonder that, like, why do I wake up in the middle of the night with a panic attack? I wasn't even doing anything. Um, and it's just because you might have been having a dream where it was raising your heart rate. Raised heart rate was associated with panic. And so your mind started really worrying about that. And that upped your nervous system, and all of a sudden, it's made you more nervous, and you had you had a panic attack. Same thing with depression, as you were mentioning. Yeah, that heaviness, that worry from the heaviness is layering stress onto your current circumstance. And depression is the epitome of a completely overwhelmed nervous system. And the typical, or not always, but typical behavior that comes with depression is avoidance. And we're avoiding naturally because the world seems overwhelming in that moment. And so we move towards avoidance. Unfortunately, that avoidance only goes on to give fuel to the depression. I do some coaching work with people where avoidance has been coming up lately. And I've just been thinking about how damaging avoidance really is. I mean, it, it's psychologically damaging because we reinforce the, the fear of the thing we're avoiding. And then it's just damaging in our lives because we're not doing the things that matter to us. So we start to feel worse. And it's talk about that idea of a spiral, right? It's a downward spiral. Avoidance can really feed a downward spiral. Yeah. I mean, I love this book, The War of Art um, by Stephen Pressfield, not The Art of War, but The War of Art, um, where uh, the whole book is about resistance. And um, and what's what's magical to me about that is he really talks, he kind of through his idea of resistance to writing in particular was his situation. He wrote the uh, the book, The Legends of Bagger Vance and, and eventually became a movie and, and uh, was this idea of naming the resistance allowed me to get space from it so that I can then choose how I want to respond in that situation. So in other words, when we're in the avoidance, we're wearing the contact lenses of avoidance. That's what we see. But the moment we're able to name it, ah, this is avoidance. I've gotten a little bit of space from it. And space gives us perspective and allows us to open up to the potential choices that are around us. So with the loop that we were, just to bring this back to the loop that we were talking about, the conditioned reaction, what's been so powerful for so many people about the about understanding how that loop works of thoughts, emotions, sensations, and behaviors, and being able to map out whatever um, routine or pattern they're trying trying to break, to be able to map out the various thoughts, emotions, sensations, and behaviors associated with that pattern, whether that's eating in an unhealthy way or depression or anxiety or whatever it might be, um, allows them to be able to name it in that moment. What happens when you name something is you bring blood flow to your prefrontal cortex which is involved with emotion regulation and perspective. And you're not so flooded within the amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain, which is just reacting from your emotions. 
you know, in that moment. So you get a little more perspective. And that was a study that came out in, uh, I think, 2007 now by Matthew Lieberman at, at uh, the U- University at UCLA, where he put people in front of some images of a man and a woman. And the woman had this like really fearful face and the man had this, um, you know, really angry face. And underneath their uh, pictures, it said Dick and Jane. They were hooked up to brain scanning machines at the time. And, um, and what you saw was you saw a lot of activity in the amygdala, the emotional center of the brain. And then you saw the same two pictures. And, uh, and on this time, it didn't have anything underneath, any names underneath. And the researchers asked them, what, what are they feeling? And the people said, oh, she's feeling fear and he's feeling anger. And you saw more activity going on in the prefrontal cortex. Uh, and so that showed us that when you name something, and so this is what neuroscience does. It's really interesting. All it does is kind of tell us things we already know um, <laughs> to some extent, which is, yeah. you know, when you name something, you step outside of it and you get perspective. When you get space from anything, you get perspective. When we're on a, a plane, you know, thousands of feet above the air, we have perspective of the land. When you get away from a painting, you get perspective of the painting. When you get, uh, when, you be, when you're able to create space, from your loop that you're in, your depression loop, your anxious loop, your habit loop, when you're able to get space from it and name it, you're actually changing the activity in your brain. You're shifting the activity in your brain to give you more perspective and the wherewithal to regulate your emotions and be able to choose a healthier response. What are some ways to gather that perspective? What are some perspective-making tools? So I would say that if we take that loop as an example, and again, just people who kind of read about that loop, just have this huge aha, and to be able to kind of um, ask yourself the question, okay, what am I trying to change in my life? What kind of pattern? What pattern do I see as unhealthy, let's say? Um, And let me ask myself, what thoughts are correlated with that? What emotions are correlate? What emotions do I feel with that? What sensations go on in my body? And maybe that's a little harder for some people because we're, depending on what your age is, for most of us, we didn't grow up with much emotional, like with any training and emotional intelligence. Um, nowadays in, in elementary schools, it's starting to shift a little bit in certain areas of the country. Um, but uh, we didn't grow up knowing our bodies, especially what we were really trained in is just staying in our heads and prizing thinking over this barometer that we have called a body that's really telling us how we're feeling moment to moment and giving us insight. So um, so it takes a little bit to kind of map out noticing sensations. So for some people who really have a hard time feeling their bodies, which are actually quite a number of people, I often recommend doing a body scan meditation practice. And you can find one on my website for absolutely free. Um, under the video section of ElishaGoldstein.com if you just need, need something to practice with um, because it's it's really kind of training your mind to be aware of sensations and emotions are sensations so you can be able to name emotions better and get more perspective. So you map out thoughts, emotions, sensations and what are the behaviors that typically follow? What journaling that does typically is it objectifies your experience. So let's say as an example, one of the um, let's use depression as example since we're on that topic Let's say I'm able to map out my depression loop, and then I can ask myself the question, okay, so um, when I notice this happening, tiredness in my body, and my mind says, um, oh my God, am I falling? Am I getting depressed uh, right now? Is this happening? I can recognize that I'm in this loop right now because I've mapped it out already. It's almost like you're, you're allowing your mind to plan for it, and you're seeing what your cues are. 
and you're able to kind of name it to get space, then in that space, you're kind of also asking yourself, what is it that I really need right now? So I'm kind of caught in this loop. I'm not feeling well. It just, it happens so automatically. It's not that you can like kind of catch, oh, there goes a thought and there goes an emotion and I almost got it. There's a sensation. It just kind of all happens at once because it's so fast. And so you can just say like, I'm in that loop right now. I'm caught in that. By naming it, you can also ask yourself, what do I need right now? Okay. So it's like, I got a little bit of a cold right now, sort of an emotional cold. Um, It's not quite a full-blown flu yet. But I'm I'm kind of here. What am I needing? Well, I'm really needing to rest. Um, I'm needing to um, you know write in my journal. I'm needing to go outside and let sunshine splash my face. I really need to call a friend right now. You know, there's all these kind of little remedies, natural antidepressant remedies that you kind of build in, so that you can begin to engage those things once you've noticed the loop before it's gone too far. And that's how you that's how you begin to learn to get better and better at shifting sooner and become more more resilient around things like anxiety, depression, unhealthy eating, getting caught into unhealthy habits um, by mapping out that loop first and coming up with the remedies that are going to support you and what you're needing to pay attention to once you're able to step into that space between stimulus and response where your perspective and choice lies. Stress is a worldwide epidemic. We're working longer hours, we're inundated with the constant news cycle, and we're more connected than ever before, and not necessarily in a good way. Stress is a part of life, but it can very easily affect our overall well-being. That's why we are partnering with Calm, the number one app to help you reduce your anxiety and stress and help you to sleep better. Calm provides guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, and focus, including a brand new meditation every day. It also has other great features like Calm masterclasses by people like Judson Brewer and Elizabeth Gilbert, sleep stories, which are bedtime stories for adults, a lot of soothing music tracks, and a breathing part of the app that helps with learning deep breathing. Right now, One You Feed listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash wolf. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash wolf. Get unlimited access to all of Calm's content today at calm.com slash wolf. If you need life insurance but you don't want to spend a lot of time comparing it, you should give Policy Genius a try. It's the easy way to buy life insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers and find your best price. I used Policy Genius when I left my job last year and lost my life insurance and needed to get new life insurance. And they were incredible, and I was then thrilled when they showed up to be a sponsor because they really are great. They made it so easy. They helped me to pick out great policies, and then they did all 
all of the paperwork, the red tape. They scheduled the visit for the doctor to come visit me to do the health exam. I mean, it could not have been easier, and the rate I got was amazing. They also will help you find home insurance, auto insurance, or disability insurance. So if you need life insurance, head to policygenius.com and compare quotes. Policy Genius is easy, it saves you money, and not to belabor the point, it's fast. Policy Genius spend less time comparing life insurance and more time doing literally anything else. So you just led us into another area I wanted to cover, and you brought up the term natural antidepressants. So many of us think of uh, the antidepressants that are the medicine you take, and you know, listeners will know that I've certainly shared how those have been very helpful to me, and I know that you are uh, a believer where necessary that those are helpful. But let's talk about natural antidepressants. What are what are some of the things that you found are natural antidepressants that can help us with this? You know, what led me to let's say even writing this book was looking at some of the neuroscience around depression because I was curious about like what happens in the brain when we're experiencing chronic depression over time or just depression in, in general because if we can see what's happening in the brain maybe we can learn about what actions we can take that shift activity in the brain or alter activity in the brain that seems to do a 180 um, and kind of move it towards what a brain looks like when it's in a more balanced, healthier state. What we found was that in a brain that's been depressed over time or has had chronic depression over time, there's an area behind our foreheads that's called the prefrontal cortex, which I mentioned earlier, um, that's involved, again, with emotion regulation and um, uh, sense, having a sense of perspective and, and a lot more. But um, there's a left and a right side to it. And the left side of the prefrontal cortex, which lies, again, right behind your forehead, is involved with positive emotions and approaching things in life. You see that area light up when you're experiencing positive emotions and when you're experiencing a, a sense of approaching things in life. And so the right side is more associated with what I'll call negative emotions. They don't – doesn't mean they're negative. Sometimes they're uncomfortable. It's really hard. The English language isn't the best at describing you know, emotions always. And so um, I just use those so we have a general agreement on what we're talking about here. But um, but uh, with uncomfortable feelings pretty much, the, you'll see a right side activation of the prefrontal area and then also with avoiding things in life. So that's one thing we found out about the experience of depression. So another area of the brain that I mentioned earlier, which was the amygdala, which you know a lot of people consider to be sort of the emotional center of the brain, you see a really active amygdala or you see actually an enlarged amygdala. Um, and so that just means that, wow, that that part of the brain has got gets a lot of activity or has a lot of strength. Um, and then an area that's right kind of beneath that is this hippocampus, which is involved with learning, memory, and putting things in context, which you see a lot of attrition in that part of the brain, which means that you see the dendrite sort of retracting. And um, what's important about that is that when you look at the brain of people who have um, experienced post-traumatic stress disorder, um, which is just like a extremely high level of stress over time, um, you see the exact same conditions. And so what's interesting about that to me is that said, okay, well, that is why the experience of depression is a trauma. 
the brain perceives depression as a trauma. So then I thought, is there anything we can do to create right uh, left prefrontal activation? Can there are there things we can do to kind of calm the amygdala, um, to train that? And are things we can do to impact the hippocampus in a positive way? And so this is where I came up with the, the idea of natural antidepressants, because what we found in the literature and in our experience is that um, the experience of mindfulness, as an example, let's say mindfulness, just meaning kind of awareness or intentionally attending to something with a sense of engaged curiosity, really kind of the opposite of what we experience in depression, which is kind of disengaged apathy. So an engaged curiosity, so you're practicing this. Remember, what we practice and repeat is what we get. It goes back to that wolf parable that we started, right? And so we found with mindfulness is that mindfulness actually does a lot of this stuff, which is, you see, left prefrontal activation, sorry, with, with mindfulness, with practice of mindfulness. Um, you see a reduction of activity in the amygdala. And that we found with mindfulness also is that you can uh, sort of repair or regrow neural connections in the hippocampus. Um, and again, that's not to say it's a panacea. And for certainly for somebody who is in the throes of depression, mindfulness is actually typically the wrong approach. Um, but this is when there's already some level of uh, ability. And that's where you were talking about how maybe Western medication can be helpful sometimes in allowing someone to even do these types of practices. But then we found other and also in compassion practices, um, which is the connecting to your heart and wishing yourself well or wishing other people well or, um, you know, recognizing the difficulty or struggle of somebody else with the inclination to want to support them or recognizing your own suffering with the inclination to want to support yourself, otherwise known as self-compassion. With compassion practices, we also see that left prefrontal activation. I can list a whole lot of other neurobiology around this, but I think that that we won't go necessarily too deep. We can go, you know, as we go, but... Uh, I found that to be really fascinating. So I wondered if we can begin to integrate mindfulness and self-compassion practices as a beginning, um, can that have a natural antidepressant effect? And so I was teaching at the time this eight-week program called Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy, very popular program um, all over the world now, um, created by Zindel Siegel and Mark Williamson and John Teasdale. And that was uh, a program that was created to help relapse prevention and depression. What I found was in teaching that program, which was around using mindfulness to help people relate to their experience differently. And in other words, what they end up doing is it's just like pain. Depression is like pain. We turn the volume down of our self-critical thinking. Is that what to me was missing was the direct teaching around self-compassion. Because when you look at the research studies of depression, the trait of self-compassion is inversely correlated is oh sorry is yeah is inversely correlated with the experience of depression meaning the more depressed somebody is the less self-compassion they have so um so i began to kind of integrate that myself um direct self-compassion in these classes and also um the direct experience of play so play is engaged uh flexible um it's uh it's spontaneous it's non-judgmental um, when you look at two kids playing or you're playing around anything yourself as an adult, um, you experience these traits, which are, again, exactly the opposite thing of depression. Um, and there's a variety of studies that show that play in, let's say, animals in particular um, uh, create really uh, uh, healthy, um, some healthy neuroplasticity, positive neuroplasticity. 
uh, in the brain and um, improve cognitive processing, meaning even enlarge our um, our cortex, which is involved with cognitive processing. But that was done with mice, but mice that actually have brains that are similar to ours, as it turns out. So mindfulness, self-compassion, play, and compassion. Um, I decided to kind of work with people more directly on to see are these natural antidepressants. And my experience showed in my own life and in other people's life that they are, and the neuroscience seems to correlate with it. That's wonderful. So that's three out of five natural antidepressants you list. So you mentioned mindfulness, self-compassion, and play. There's two others that are in your list, and maybe we could just hit those two real quick before we maybe go deeper on any individual one. And those were purpose and mastery. Right. So purpose is another way of saying purpose to me is really around compassion. Purpose is the recognition of me engaging life with in, in concert with something greater than myself. Um, which typically, with the act of compassion, we have that we have that type of experience because we're going outside of ourselves, or recognizing something um, outside of ourselves uh, that that's struggling with the inclination to want to support them, uh, to support uh, that person or that group or something like that. So the action of compassion helps create a sense of purpose, but a sense of purpose can also just be this this action that I'm taking that is engaging something that's greater than myself. Uh, and that gives us a sense of maybe our common humanity, the collective of humanity. Um, and I often talk about how, you know, understanding like maybe what our gifts are, our talents, or what resources we come into this world with um, can be something that we can begin to utilize. Let's say whether I have money or whether I'm naturally um, gifted empath or whether I am uh, somebody who knows a lot of people or something like that. You know, these are all just different gifts or talents that we have, resources that we can begin to utilize to do something that makes this world a better place, that gives us a sense of purpose. Or maybe if it's connected with a higher power or being in line with the values of my religion or something like that, um, or spiritual tradition, um, that could be give a sense of purpose. So mastery is, the other one is also a natural antidepressant as when we're feeling depression, um, we tend to have a mindset that's more telling us what we can and can't do. Um, and Carol Dweck talks about this quite a bit. It says we have kind of two mindsets here. We have a we have a, uh, a growth mindset and we have a fixed mindset. And only one of them leads to mastery. And so the fixed mindset says, whatever I do, if I fall short, um, that's just reinforcement of what I can't do and what's not possible for me. The growth mindset says, that I can practice and repeat things uh, over time and just learn to get better and better at them. So if I fail at something, I can learn from it and I could build upon it. And what we found is with people who have depression over time, we tend to have more fixed mindsets. And so if we can begin to build in this, what I call maybe a learning mindset, which is that life is about learning, um, there's definitely always going to be obstacles along the path. And when I run into an obstacle, I can make sure I pick something up when I fall down. You know, it's a it's it's something that's been talked about over time. It's almost like it's almost not new, but but looking at it as a natural antidepressant, this idea of a growth mindset, you know, helps us understand the kind of way we want to be thinking that goes against the stream and flow of the way our brain works when we're feeling depressed.
I'm always trying to become a better, more well-rounded version of myself. And that's why I've been a fan of watching and listening to The Great Courses Plus for years. This streaming service is an incredible opportunity to learn from engaging experts across so many areas of interest. Lately, I've been enjoying the Great Courses Plus series on understanding the mysteries of human behavior. This set of 24 lectures examines some particularly puzzling aspects of human nature, features of people's thoughts, emotions, and behaviors that have intrigued scientists and lay people alike. It has lectures like, why is self-control so hard? Why do we make mountains out of molehills? Why do we have emotions? And what the hell is wrong with Chris? <laughs> it's a great course, but even world-class experts are stumped on that last one. <laughs> there is always something new to learn with the Great Courses Plus. And I've got an incredible limited time offer to get you started. Get a free trial plus lock into their lowest price of $10 per month when you sign up for a three-month plan. That's 50% off the regular price. But it's only available for a limited time and only by going to this special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com wolf. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com wolf all spelled out, to get your free trial plus 50% off your monthly plan. TheGreatCoursesPlus.com slash wolf for this amazing offer. The fixed or growth mindset is such an important piece we've had Carol on the show. It's something I find myself coming back to over and over again. In the book, you list some ways that we might be able to get ourselves into more of a growth mindset. Can you give us some strategies? Because sometimes it's easy to understand like, yes, I should have more of a growth mindset, but boy, I just don't feel that way right now. So what are some ways to get ourselves perhaps closer to the growth mindset than the fixed mindset? One of the key attitudes we want to begin practicing and adopting is curiosity. It's at the epicenter of mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness, again, the definition that I use anyways, is you're engaged with something in the moment with a sense of curiosity. That's, mm -hmm. that's kind of what it is. And with a growth mindset is, you know, one of the ways to kind of get into that is just to be practicing, practice being curious in your life. Um, uh, again, it's the same. If we go back to the parable at the beginning of our time together, uh, you know, which wolf am I going to feed? You know, the, the one that is curious, I want to feed that one. Because if I can get, learn to get better and better at being curious, then even at the moments I fall, it's not... What, what, what's implicitly arises doesn't have to be that, see, I knew I couldn't do it. I never could do this. No one can help me and I can't help myself um, and nothing's ever going to change. It can be like, oh, look, look what I did and look what didn't work. Let me look at this obstacle, be curious about it and see what I might do differently next time. I might spend a little bit more time on it. So to me, one of the core ways, if I'm to look at, you know, from a list, like really what one of the core ways to really grow a growth mindset is to practice being curious in your life. And again, I'll say that, you know, the way our brain works is w with practice and repetition, it creates automaticity. And so, um, and which makes it implicit, automatic. The same reason we can type on a keyboard. If I, if I said to you, type, I am home, and you typed, I am home, and I said, how difficult was that? And you'd say, that was pretty easy to do. And I said, well, now recite to me the middle row of the keyboard. And you'd say, I don't really know it. Most people, there's always like some people who know it, but you know, 
we don't know. But it's interesting that our hands know exactly where to go. It's embodied. It's a habit. But our brain doesn't, and and that, I wouldn't say our brain, but to be able to recall that um, factual memory, um, that explicit memory, is harder to do. So we want to make it a habit, basically. We want to make curiosity a habit, being curious about things, being curious about our obstacles, being curious about really anything in life um, to make that more automatic for us uh, so that when we fall, when we come across the the obstacle that's there, um, we have more of an automatic learning-based mindset, um, otherwise known as a growth mindset, to naturally fall into that. Yeah, I love how you're correlating a learning mindset with a growth mindset. I think that's such a great connection. And that idea of curiosity of really the question I work so often with people on is ask yourself, what could you have done differently, but in a completely non-judgmental and totally curious way, like really, truly, what could you have done differently? Like to really engage that question is so powerful if it's done in a curious, non-judgmental way, that, that it, there's so much that can come from that. Another way of getting us into that mode is um, by imagining we're a scientist, or if we're a group, we're a team of scientists coming together to study our experience. And the scientist is more interested in the kind of objective facts, like what what happened here, what happened there, we're kind of mapping it out. And so when, let's say, some, when we go astray in some way, we might um, be curious about, as a scientist, like, how did we get astray? What was the steps to getting astray um, or falling down or whatever we might we want to say? What was the obstacle? And then what, would we, what might we have implemented? What are some ideas of what we might have implemented to kind of go in a different direction? And so it's like, it's like we're not looking for a specific outcome necessarily. We're just curious about what might lead to this or that. Um, So I think that automatically arouses that learning-based mindset. That is a great idea. So we're nearing the end of our time here. You and I are going to have a post-show conversation where we're going to talk about a few more strategies that we can use to deal with depression. Uh, Listeners, you can get access to that by going to oneyoufeed.net slash support. But before we start that post-show conversation, I wanted to ask you to maybe say a little bit more about play. This is one that I have found myself really only in the last year, sort of, it sounds funny to say, getting serious about play, um, (laughs) which I have to watch for turning playing into something else that I have to do. But I've really recognized how, like, I need to do something just because it's fun. So talk to me about the importance of play and some things that you found are good for adults. If you look at the body language of somebody who's experiencing anxiety or depression, and you look at the body language in an animal or a human being who's playing, um, it looks like exact. It looks like the opposite. Yeah. Uh, and so, and again, when you look at some of the neuroscience around it, uh, you you see some really important shifts in the brain that that look like they're the opposite of what's happening with depression. And so, um, with play. I, and I teach this all, you know, it was in, it's interesting. When I when I begin to integrate this into my programs um, with groups of people who are experiencing depression, it was almost like there was this depth of thirst that was there for this experience um, of just being um, more flexible, open, spontaneous um, in the moment, kind of more using um, improv almost, you know, at times. 
that's there. But so when I ask people, typical practice um, that I ask people to do is to go back into their childhood and just think about um, what some of the uh, ways that they played were. And it's always with a caveat of if you think you didn't experience any play in your childhood, because that that that's certainly some people's narrative, um, that you just fast forward to some experience in the future that was your earliest recognition of any kind of play in your life. And the intention of that of asking them to do that um, is to just begin to warm the coals that are there. Um, we always have thoughts in our minds or memories in our minds, but they're just not top of mind. And uh, and marketers know this, you know, very well that they try to put advertising out there all the time to help just bring top of mind something so that you buy it. Um, mm-hmm. It's there always, but bring it top of mind. So in this way, this is kind of bringing it top of mind. And then I ask them, and typically people have experiences where um, I ask them to just really kind of focus on the qualities. Like, were you outside? Were you inside? Were you um, playing? Were you were you playing with other kids? Were you by yourself? Were you using your imagination? Um, you know, what were you doing? And then being able, the next step was to help people um, understand, you know, uh, maybe how these qualities that they're doing, the qualities, not that you were playing. Um, you know, on your BMX as a kid, and now you're, you know, on a BMX as an adult <laughs> or something, you know, something like that. So, but it's more like I was outside and I was active. I was on a bike, you know, maybe that kind of thing. So how does that, how do those qualities translate to you as an adult today? And what's interesting is a couple things happen in that beginning of that exercise, which is there's always a fraction of people who recognize that they always thought their childhood was so terrible, but now they realize that there was actually quite a bit of play in their childhood, and it immediately switches their narrative. Literally about 15 to 20% every single time I do this, no matter how large the group is that I'm working with, there's this immediate shift of narrative within a small percentage of people, which I, I'm always in awe at and, and think is so incredibly powerful to be able to shift that narrative. For everyone else, what I'm what I what we're asking is what we start to do is recognize that actually there are some things that I'm doing right now that I'm not even labeling as play, but what happens when I do label it as play? So when I was a kid, I was um, outside and taking walks um, out in nature. Um, Nowadays, I go on a hike, but I kind of do it for exercise. Um, What would happen if, you know, for me and my experience, what would happen if I began to go outside and be in nature, but just say, you know, this is me playing. How does that shift my perception in that moment? How does that shift my experience in that moment? For a lot of people, including myself, um, it immediately makes it a little bit lighter. We, we, there's there's a more value in the experience that's there, and we're probably, if I'm, you know, who knows? I'm no no one's doing this type of neuroscience, but we might be activating more of the left prefrontal cortex, um, which is more of, uh, associated with positive emotion. You know, that's there, not just the endorphins from doing the walk, but a sense of playing, right? Um, then we kind of move on to say, okay, why don't you make a list of things that you're not doing right now that you might consider to be play that correlate with these qualities that you did as a kid. Um, and so we start making a list of other activities that are there. And so then we start looking at our our lives and we start saying, where can I either name something as play that I wasn't naming before um, as play, or where can I begin to integrate some of these other things that I haven't been allowing myself to do? Because play, again, is the complete opposite. When we're playing, it's completely opposite of the experience we have when we're feeling really anxious or depressed. And so the experience yeah. is it's a natural antidepressant, both physiologically, neurologically, and psychologically. 
Yeah, I think that's great. And I've been exploring more of it myself, as I mentioned, for sure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. As I mentioned, you and I will talk a little bit more in the post-show conversation, but it's been such a pleasure having you on, and I've really enjoyed this. Thank you, Eric. This has been wonderful. All right. Bye. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.